0: We're kicking off a new series today, and uh, it's called The Unexpected Christmas. And uh, I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew is where we're going to land today. Uh, We uh, probably oftentimes take for granted the the fact that we have four different accounts of the life of Jesus. They're called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, when we look at those four Gospel accounts, it's interesting to note that, that of those four, two of them don't start with the birth of Jesus, Mark and John they start with the ministry of John the Baptist about thirty years after Jesus was born. You look at the the book of Luke and Luke starts with you know the Bible story that we would think of around Christmas time you know the angel coming and announcing that John the Baptist was going to be born and then going over to uh, the teenage girl Mary and saying hey you're going to be the mother of the Savior of the world right and and so have that announcement and so uh, three of the four of our gospels start with. At least the story of some sort, and then you jump to the book of Matthew. And if you found it there, and you find Matthew chapter one verse one, what does it start with? It starts with a genealogy. It starts with all these list of names. And if you start reading through this, you, you might decide, you know what, I don't even want to start with Matthew because it's just a bunch of names, right? So how does it begin? Let, let's just read, you know, part of it. He gets to the Christmas story eventually. He'll, he'll get there, but how does it start? Matthew chapter one. Verses 1 and 2, it says, "...a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers," and goes on and on and works his way from Abraham clear down through until he gets to Jesus. So why would Matthew begin his account of Jesus' life this way? Well, there's a couple of different reasons. The first one is this. Matthew writes to a primarily Jewish audience and he's about to make the case that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one that the prophets have been talking about. He's he's the one that we've all been waiting for. And the first question that any Jewish person would ask when someone starts to make a claim of this sort is wait. Is he related to David? Because God has told us throughout all of our history, that David would have a descendant on the throne. That that David's lineage would carry on. And so if he's not from David, then we can't take him seriously. So is he from David? And so Matthew, knowing that it's a primarily Jewish audience, he begins to answer that question first. Is he related to David? Who is Jesus ultimately related to? That's what he's asking. So he gives this genealogy, and that's how he starts. But in doing so, Matthew does something that, that's really kind of different and pretty strange, if you will, in a primarily male-dominated genealogy. In fact, it really should all be male, all right? And no offense, women, but it should have just all been male. He throws in four different women. He talks about four different women, and not only does he mention four different women, he seems to pause as he writes down the names of these four different women that If you were writing a genealogy of God and trying to make the case that Jesus is the Son of God, you probably should just leave these women out. But he puts them in there, because his point as he's writing this is to convince people that Jesus came from David, that Jesus is the Son of God. And yet, he seems to do everything to kind of disrupt that flow and make you question whether or not he really is. And so, why does he do that? Well, what's really fascinating about this is that if you were to go back to this time frame, in ancient times, that very few people had histories written about themselves. In fact, the only people that really had histories written were those who could afford to hire historians to write their history. The famous generals, military people, kings, emperors, they were the ones that had the histories written about them. And, and generally speaking, they hired people to write histories about themselves to make themselves look good. And because they wrote about stuff to make them look good, oftentimes in histories we have gaps. Because they would talk about their military conquest and whenever they did something really, really good, or when their children did really something really, really good, and yet whenever they were defeated, or whenever they had one of those children that didn't quite measure up to what they were supposed to do, you know, just didn't mention it. Just kind of skip over that and, you know, just kind of let it go. So the idea was that as you had a history written about you, that you look as good as you possibly could. And and that's the histories that we have. Most historians wrote in that time frame with a point in mind, with an objective. They wanted the person or the the group of people to make them look good. And then we come to Matthew and we see what Matthew writes. And in Jesus' genealogy, he adds and almost emphasizes people that he really shouldn't have mentioned at all. He should have just kind of skipped over them. And it should have been just a male-dominated list, again, because Jesus, or because Matthew was trying to link Jesus the man to David the man through a lineage of men. He should have just stuck with the names of men, and yet he throws in four women. And, and what's interesting about these four women is that two of them, he really shouldn't have mentioned. And we're going to get into those in the next couple of weeks. And three of the four, they're not even Jewish. And so the Jewish readers, as they read this, would have been going, huh? You're putting that in there? Look at verse 3. He says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. He introduces Tamar. and That's, that's a little blank there on your, in your bulletin if you want to fill that in. The first woman that, that we're going to talk about is Tamar. We're going to talk about her next week. And how many of you know the story of Tamar? That's kind of what I expected. You know, there's about six hands across the auditorium. Um, the story of Tamar is not one that we talk about a lot. Why? Because it's pretty dicey. In fact, there's some verses in Scripture about Tamar that I'm not sure I feel comfortable reading from the front of the stage in, uh, in church, okay? It's an interesting story to say the least. And yet, if you're Jewish and you're reading through this genealogy and you come across the name Tamar, you know the story. And immediately you are going, Wow, Tamar, there's a good one, right? And they would remember and they would go back and they would wonder why. It creates this intrigue and this mystery and this questioning about this. He continues, Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Verse 4, Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Okay, so he throws in another woman. And this woman, Rahab, She's not Jewish either, by the way. And if you know your Bible history, Rahab had a nickname. Rahab the... anyone? Prostitute. Yeah, prosti- Rahab the prostitute. In fact, whenever you get to heaven and you're meeting all the people and you meet Rahab, Rahab you might be tempted to say, Rahab, you're the lady they talk about in the Old Testament, right? Because that's how we know her. We, she's known as Rahab the prostitute. He mentions her. There's no reason to bring her up, is there? There's no reason to bring her into this story and into this picture. The Jewish reader would go, Rahab. Oh yeah, we remember Rahab. Verse five continues. He says, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now Ruth, finally, there's a good story. There's a good story about Ruth. Okay, there's a whole book of the Bible about Ruth and and how Ruth and it goes through the story. And but she's not Jewish, by the way. She's not Jewish. In fact, she's from Moab. And I know that whenever I say Moab, you immediately go back to the book of Amos and everything that's going on. And right, how many of you did that? In, okay, that's what I thought. No, we we don't because we are not Jewish. We don't know the history like they would. But they would know. You say Ruth, and they would go to what was happening there, and they would go back to that story, and the Jewish people would would understand what was going on. Uh, she wasn't Jewish. And in fact, how Rahab or how Ruth even got into the story was was kind of different. And so you kind of have to start asking the question, Matthew, what are you doing? Why are you including this? You're trying to convince Jewish people that Jesus is in the lineage of David and that He is the Messiah, that He's this Chosen One, that He is the Savior of the world. Why are you bringing up all these other people? He continues, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. And then look at how he writes this next little verse. He says, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now that's an interesting way to put that, isn't it? Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I mean, we've already talked about he should just be sticking with the men's names, right? But now he throws in a guy's name, who's not in the lineage, that really has nothing to do with the story, except it's his wife. Used to be his wife. He doesn't even say the woman's name, and yet everybody knew it, right? Her name is? Bathsheba. You don't really even have to be a church person to know the story of David and Bathsheba. That's one of those that, that everybody knows about most of the time. Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. He, he makes it worse. Matthew does. Instead of just saying, whose mother was Bathsheba, he, he brings out this extra little piece of the puzzle to say, who had been Uriah's wife. And, and if you know your Old Testament history, and you, you know how that kind of went, um, the Jewish people would have been at this point going, wait, wait, why did you have to bring that up? Why did you have to talk about that part of King David's life? We don't want to remember his flaws. We want to celebrate King David, the man after God's own heart. We want to remember the good part, not the bad part. You see, what he did was he had one of his, his best friend and one of his top generals, he, he sent one of his top generals to the front lines and he had him killed so that he could steal his wife. And there's a lot more to the story than that, but it's one of the worst seasons in David's life. And Matthew writes about this. He writes about that in the lineage of Jesus. And he hasn't even started the story of Jesus, and he's already created all this turmoil about Tamar and, and Rahab, and now the woman who was Uriah's wife. Just like sticking a knife in and twisting a little deeper, right? Here, you know, let, let's chew on this a little bit. He should have just stuck with the men's name. But why did he do this? Why did he create it this way? Well, I think he did it because Matthew had spent time with Jesus. He'd spent three years with Jesus. He stood next to the empty tomb. Matthew had seen Jesus die on the cross. He had heard what Jesus had taught to the people. And he knew that that all these characters with all the baggage and all the sin and all the embarrassing stories and all the stuff that had happened, he knew, Matthew knew, that they were the point of the story he was about to tell. They were the reason that this story was significant. Matthew knew that the issue that Jesus came to address was sin. He understood that Jesus didn't just come for sinners, but that Jesus came from sinners. And and that's the point of the story. Matthew knew firsthand that, that this story of Jesus is about light coming into darkness. It's about a world characterized by death having life about this law that they were all bound to, about Jesus coming and giving them grace. He understood that that's why Jesus came and it was for people who needed Him that was the point. And I think that when Matthew was writing throughout this genealogy, he, he wrote down these people because people like Tamar and people like Rahab and people like Bathsheba, they were His kind of people. They were probably the type of people that would have been His Whenever he was on earth, whenever he was before he met Jesus and, and before he, he came to understand him and, and before he was writing this, he, he was, had a questionable background himself. We, we learn about Matthew in Matthew chapter 9. Even though Matthew's written all this stuff about Jesus, he introduces himself in Matthew chapter 9. I invite you to turn over there. Um, it, it happened in Capernaum when, when Jesus and Matthew met for the first time. Uh, Capernaum is this little town on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the Sea of Galilee was really more like a, a big lake, but they called it a sea. It had several ports around it. And one day, Jesus and his disciples are on a boat, and they get off at the port there, and, and they they are walking. And as often happened in Jesus' ministry, a, la- a large group of people would gather together Around where Jesus was and most of the time they wanted something they wanted to see something they wanted Jesus to do something in this particular case in Matthew chapter 9 we see a group of people had brought their friend as Jesus got off the boat was walking across the dock and they they bring their friend and they lay down their friend in front of Jesus and it's almost like they look at Jesus and they look at their friend then they look at Jesus and they look at their friend and they're like little help you know can, can you do something here and Jesus says something very interesting to him, in Matthew chapter nine verse two, he says, "Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven." Now that was a very odd thing for Jesus to say to that man. That's really not why his friends brought the, brought him there. Do you think? He said, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And then maybe Jesus turned to go. Maybe that's what was what He wanted to do. And the religious leaders and the, the teachers and the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were all around. They were following Jesus to kind of learn about Him. And they were like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You can't do that. You can't say that you can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. If you're saying that you can forgive sins, then you're putting yourself on the same level of God, and that's blasphemy. You can't do that. Because we have laws against that, and we can take you out right now because you've committed blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin. But before they can really take that train and get on it and run with it, Jesus looks at the young man and says, oh, okay, get up, take your mat, and go home. And Jesus healed him. And I have to think all the people around were going, that's cool, right? Right? They were amazed. People were always amazed whenever they came in contact with Jesus. They even said that they were amazed that such authority had been given to a mere man. Now, we don't know if Matthew saw that or not. But what we do know is that Matthew, when he wrote his account of Jesus' life, and whenever he shared with his audience when he met Jesus, it was right after this account of healing the man after they had gotten off the boat. It was right after Jesus looked at the paralyzed man and said, your sins are forgiven. That's when we know that that Matthew would be face to face with Jesus. He would meet him for the very first time. This is how Matthew writes his own story in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says this, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, why is it significant that he was sitting at a tax collector's booth? Well, the Romans, uh, they needed taxes. And so what they would do is they would sell the privilege of collecting taxes to Roman citizens. They would sell them for a five-year period. And you would go to Rome and you would buy the opportunity to go live in Judea or Palestine or one of those cities to collect taxes. And what they would do was they, a Roman person would come in and they would be the tax collector. And, and they would be collecting all the taxes on everything. And so as they were there, they weren't very popular, okay? A Roman person being in a Jewish town, not popular, then the Roman person being in a Jewish town collecting taxes that the people didn't want to pay really made them unpopular, you know, to the point where they probably had their houses egged and probably slashed the, the tires on their chariots type thing, you know? They, they weren't very popular at all. And what they could do was they could charge whatever taxes they wanted. They could have the, the tax they had to collect And then they could charge just a little bit more as long as they kept Rome happy. And so because of that, they were very wealthy. They were very very wealthy people. But they always had a conflict with the Roman people. So the Romans got real smart. They said, here's what we'll do. We will give that opportunity to Jewish people. And so then a Jew could then buy the the right and buy the opportunity to then collect taxes from his own people. And, And this system was was pretty significant and, and there were lots of taxes there were income taxes poll taxes bridge taxes gate taxes taxes on fruit taxes on meat taxes at ports everywhere you went there was a, a roman tax and if they needed more taxes needed more money they'd just raise the taxes or add a new tax That sound familiar at all <laughs> So they would recruit these jewish people then to go and start collecting all these taxes And to be a Jewish person collecting taxes from Jewish people and sending it to Rome and charging more, it's about the lowest of low. You really couldn't get any lower than that. You were a total traitor. You were an outcast. And so they did that and and they collected the taxes and and they were on the, the bottom of the totem pole. In fact, on the bottom of the totem pole were two different classes of people. The tax collectors and the sinners. Just couldn't get any lower than that in this society. And that's who Matthew was. Matthew was the tax collector. He was an embarrassment to his family. He was ostracized from all religious life. He was never ceremonially clean enough to go to the temple or to go to synagogue. He, he was the type of guy that the only people that would hang out with him were other tax collectors and sinners. Those were his friends. And that's where he sits. He sits at the tax collection booth and Jesus walks up Jesus, the picture of righteousness, this holiness personified, as as one person described him, God in a bod. And he walks up to Matthew and says, Well, we we don't know what Matthew's thinking. We don't know what's going through Matthew's mind, but but you gotta set the scene and think about this. You've got Jesus followed by his disciples. The disciples are Jewish. Matthew is Jewish and and they, you know, the disciples didn't really like the tax collectors either. And so you've got to wonder what they were talking about. What, what were they going to do? How were they going to treat this tax collector? You know, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, as they were walking by, were they going to spit at him? Were they going to sneer at him? Were they just going to whisper, whisper, whisper? You know, were they going to shoot him dirty looks? What were they going to do? And in the middle of verse 9, the text says, Jesus looks at Matthew and says, follow me. And you can almost hear Matthew and the rest of the, or Peter and the rest of the disciples going, excuse me? what, what, what did you say? And Jesus is like, no, Matthew, follow me. And we know that Matthew, he, he turned his stuff over and apparently to the people that were helping him. And, and he says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus. And he, he leaves it all there and he gets up and, and he follows Jesus right then and right there. and, and If you know the story, you you can almost hear it. You know, Matthew gets up and turns over responsibility and starts following Jesus. And then Matthew maybe goes, uh, question. I know I'm new, but where are we going? And Jesus said, "Uh, let's go to your house. Okay, let's go to my house. And In fact, Jesus says, let's go to your house and and let's let's have a meal. Let's have a meal together. And you can almost hear Peter and, and the rest of them going, no way, no. We're not going to go to a tax collector's house. It's bad enough that you invited him to hang around for a while, but we're not going to go to his house. I don't know what you're trying to do here, Jesus, but it's not working. You know, we're trying to get this movement. We're trying to get this momentum started. We're trying to recruit people. And if you're going to start hanging out with the tax collectors, you're going to kill it. This is not a very good PR marketing move, Jesus. Come on. And yet Jesus says, here's what we're going to do. You've got to think, as Matthew is writing his own story, he must have smiled when he remembered Peter and John and the rest of their reaction to him when Jesus said, I want you to come with us. Come with us. Let's go to your house and and let's let's have a meal. In fact, let's have a party and why don't you invite your friends, Matthew? Well, who are Matthew's friends? Other tax collectors and sinners. And so they throw a party. And the story goes on, and we know that they bring all these people together, and the religious leaders who are still following around Jesus, scratching their head, they're like, I don't understand what's happening. And they don't go to the party. They can't go inside his house, because if they were to go inside Matthew's house and be a part of this, they would be so unceremonial, they would be so... Unceremonial clean, you know, they couldn't go in the temple for a long time. It'd take them a long time. I guess, you know, sinners and tax collectors had special kind of cooties that they had to stay far away from and these types of things. And, and so they, they motioned to the disciples and said, Hey, come here. You need, to, you need to answer a question for us. We do not understand your teacher. We do not understand your rabbi. We do not understand what he's doing because, on one hand, he talks about the righteousness of God and he talks about holiness and he talks about the goodness of God and he talks about how we need to uphold the law. And on the other hand, He's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. He's in there getting, you know, unceremonially clean now. You know, he just he can't do it. How can it be both ways? We, we don't get it. We don't understand. Look at verse 12. It says, On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. At which point, Matthew and all of his other friends, they could have been offended, right? What? But they weren't. Because you know what? People who are far from God know. They know they're far from God. They understand that. And you've got to think, if you can get into the mind of Matthew, he was probably saying something along the lines of, you know, I've really never thought of myself as sick, but yeah, if what those people are compared to what I am, yeah, then I guess I am sick. I guess I do need a doctor. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, but go and and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And even though we really don't have time to go into that story that Jesus refers to back in Hosea chapter 6, the religious leaders who were there, that would trigger in their brain and they would know the story that Jesus was talking about and, and they would understand the point that Jesus was trying to make. And Jesus goes on and He says, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus, why did You come? And Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous people or the people who are good enough. I came to call the sinners. And that was not offensive to Matthew and his friends because they knew they were sinners. Matthew, he he knew he was far from God. And I think as, as Matthew considered his own story, he realized that to include the sinners in the genealogy of Jesus was the point of the story. That they needed to know that they were not the exception to the rule They were the point. Jesus had come to live out this mission. He he came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. He came not for those that were healthy, but for those that were sick. And Matthew understood, maybe better than all the other gospel writers, that the story of Jesus, and specifically this Christmas story that we're looking forward to celebrating as, as we move into the Christmas time, is about God drawing near to people who had drawn away, and God drawing near to those who had been drawn away those maybe who had been pushed away by the religious people, Matthew understood that he needed to highlight the problems in the genealogy of Jesus because not only were they important people, they were the reason Jesus came in the first place. They were the point. And at the end of three years during the ministry that, that uh, Matthew was able to witness that Jesus did here on earth, and, and as as he stood there, and as he as he saw Jesus die, and as he saw the empty tomb, and and... I think he discovered lots of things. He discovered that the rules had changed. God hadn't changed, but the way people viewed God could change. And from now on, the tax collectors and the sinners and, and the people who had, who had failed and who would broken the law in each and every way that it was possible, that they could approach God not based on how good they were or on what they had done or what they hadn't done, but they could approach God on the basis of what Jesus had done for them. It was no longer about self. It was all about Jesus. Because the rules changed with Jesus. The genealogy of Jesus showed that God came to save those who were just like the Tamar and the Rahab. To save those who were just like Matthew. Because they need a Savior. We all need a Savior. He knew that that the story that he was about to tell, the story of Jesus, this amazing story, was... That he came to save those who needed a Savior. And we all need that Savior. I think as Matthew wrote this, I think at times when he was writing the genealogy, he may have just laughed. He may have just paused and gone, I've got to include this. The people have got to understand. They've got to understand that that this is the point. I've got to mention Tamar and let their minds wander through that story. I have to mention Uriah's wife, right? Because they need to understand that it's because of. People like this that that Jesus came. That's the point of the story that Matthew was about to tell. So here's what we're going to do over the the next few weeks. We're going to look at some of those stories. We're going to look at those stories, and some of them you may know. Some of them I may have piqued your interest enough that you will know by the end of the day today. And and we're going to look at Tamar and Rahab. We're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And and we're going to spend the time in Christmas to focus on these things. Now why would we do that? Well, because when the angel came and announced the birth of Jesus. The angel came and announced the birth of Jesus as the Messiah, as the savior to the whole world, to everyone. That's the point of Christmas. The point is that we all need that savior. And because we needed it, God sent us a savior. And so To Matthew, the genealogy was the perfect place to launch into the story of a Savior because it highlighted the need for a Savior. We all need that Savior. And as we do every week, we offer you an invitation to receive Him. You see, Matthew wrote about people who were far from God, encountered God, and became close to God. He wrote about them because that's the point. He wrote about them because that was his story. And chances are, that's your story as well. Maybe you've never accepted Christ and and truth be told, you're walking far from Him and it's time to start walking with Him. It's time to encounter Him in a way maybe like you've never encountered before. And you need to turn it over to Him. Maybe you're like Greg and Carla Whitlow a couple weeks ago. They've been walking with God a long time. And finally said, it's time. Yes, was the word Carla kept saying. Yes. Yes, God. You tell me, I'll do it. Maybe like Ken and Donna, who you know, a couple weeks ago as well, after that were all dismissed. They said, I should have done this today. And they said, I just can't wait any longer. And we got to witness that as well. Maybe you're like Erica, who, you know what, had heard about it. Mom had been praying for her. People around her loving her. And she just said, I need to do this. Tell me what I need to know. Show me this Jesus who came alive in the Scripture and what He's done for me. And she was just, yes, obedient. I'll do it. I don't know where you are in your walk or if you're walking at all. But we're ready to receive you. We're ready to to help you take that next step in your life, in your relationship with God, whatever it is. We invite you to take that step. And if you'll take a step toward Him, we'll meet you at the cross and we'll be more than happy to take that step with you to walk down that road with you, to share with you, to love you, and as Robin said, to be family as we walk this path together. Stand with me. Ian's going to lead us in this invitation song. If you want to talk to someone, if you have a decision to make, you make your way over to the cross. We'll meet you there.